Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Doug. I'm the campus pastor here at East, and it's a joy to be able to worship with you this morning. Um, we are clearly in the middle of Advent season, coming towards the end here, and and Advent really is a time. It's it's a time of waiting. The word means arrival, right? So for hundreds of years, God's people awaited. They waited for the arrival of a savior, of a king who would come and deliver deliver them. And so as you think of the period of, of waiting, no doubt they were waiting with anticipation, right? That this king would come. And, and we now, as God's people on this side of Jesus, are still a people who wait, right? We, we wait for the second coming. And, and like God's people waited with anticipation, with excitement, that, that's one way that we can talk about our waiting now, is as a people who wait with anticipation, with excitement. There's no doubt that many, as they think of just a couple of days of opening up Christmas gifts and spending time with their family, that they're excited as they wait, right? But we also know that waiting is a time that's not just marked with excitement and anticipation. Um, as God's people, historically, we, we also know that, that living life, this period of waiting, can also be a time of, of difficulty. It can be a time of suffering, of grief, and quite honestly, of sadness. And for a lot of folks, holiday season can be that as well. Um, just on my way over to church here this morning, saw the news um, of the tsunami that hit Indonesia and hundreds of lives lost. Many people um, still, you know, many people st still searching for, for these individuals, right? Um, and it's a reminder that as we wait for the second coming, that our earth still groans. All of creation groans. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks a little bit about this. He says, For I consider that the suffering, this present time, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So whether we think of our, our, our time of waiting as one with excitement and of anticipation, or if we think primarily of suffering and difficulty and grief as we wait, both of these concepts, what's so amazing about them is what they both share, what they both have in common is hope, the concept of hope. That as a people, while we wait, we can hope the Christ, the truth, that Christ will return and will one day put all things back together as they should be. And so that's really what marks us as a people. Christmas time hopefully will remind us that we are people who wait and we don't wait without hope. We wait with hope. And so what we've been doing the last couple of weeks as a church, and we've been just kind of walking through the story, the Christmas story. And this morning we're going to spend our time in Matthew chapter 2. Um, and I'll be looking specifically at verses 1 through 12. And I would invite you to take out your Bibles, um, open them up to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are some back there. Craig, can, Craig doesn't know where they're at. Sorry, there are none back there. Just look over the shoulder of a neighbor, maybe pull out your phone, whatever. That's fine, okay. Give us a pass this Sunday maybe, all right? Lots of moving parts. There are donuts, though. You can have a donut if you want. How about that? All right, Matthew chapter 2, story of the wise men. Hopefully this is a familiar passage um, for many of us, especially um, given the time of year that we are in. So Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea the, the days, in the days of Herod the king, behold wise, men from, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose... And we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. 
For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we come to this place this morning, Lord, we acknowledge you as the true Messiah King. God, you are the deliverer of your people. Um, this is your word. Father, we ask that you would spend, that you would send your spirit, that he would show us your son in this text this morning, Father. And we ask that you would take these words with, which we believe to be eternal and to be true. Lord, we ask that you would write them on our hearts. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Let me ask you a question here this morning to kind of get things started. Have you ever been misled? Have you ever been misled? I think of, uh, you know, false advertisements are a plenty, promising joy and satisfaction if you just purchase this gift. You, you buy it, you put it to use, and you find out that the joy that it promised simply fades. Perhaps you've been misled by a relationship, right? Maybe there's somebody who's come into your life who has promised to offer you companionship and friendship, but when you need them the most, they're nowhere to be found. Have you ever been misled? Maybe there's a game or an event, a, a boxing match that just didn't quite live up to its hype. Ask again, have you ever been misled? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I actually was the result of doing some misleading myself, all right? Um, it, it was an accident. I did ask for forgiveness, you know, sort of, kind of, but I'll just describe the situation to you. I spent a uh, a couple of days in Des Moines at a workshop. And the workshop was really, it was about preaching. And so some of you are probably like, thank God, okay. <laughs> Is there another workshop maybe you can go to soon? It was about preaching. And, and the presenter of the workshop was actually from England. He had traveled a ways. He's a, a prominent preacher and, and, and really an, an awesome, awesome man of God. I hadn't known him before this, but spent time listening to him and learning from him. And it was really a delight. And um, the whole time he presented, he he, you know, being that he's English, he did so with an English accent, all right? You can imagine, right? It's very appropriate. Um, and so as I sat there for, I mean, two and a half days listening to this man expound God's word, teaching, I mean, hours and hours and hours of listening to this beautiful British accent, at least what I, what I thought was beautiful. 
Um, and you know, got done with the workshop and, and got in the car and was headed back to Iowa City and, and was just, just got done listening to this man speak and was just like replaying his words in my head. And I thought, okay, before I get on the interstate to head back home, I'm going to stop by Starbucks and get, get something to drink, all right? So I, I, I pop into Starbucks real quick and, and I go to order a London Fog, okay? Anybody? <laughs> I don't know if you ever heard of London Fog, just some Earl Grey tea with steamed milk, some vanilla. It's really delightful. It really is, okay? Um, I had never had one before, but I thought, why not try, right? Just, it's very, just feeling very British at the time, okay? <laughs> and this is just no lie. It was, okay. Stood up there to order this, and this is not intentional. It was not intentional, I promise you, okay? But I went to say, well, could I please have a London Fog? But when I said it, it just came out in a British accent, all right? And it was seriously not, I was not intending on doing it, okay? But I could instantly see the person behind the desk kind of perk up, right? Oh, you know, I don't know if it was any good or not, but I rolled it out. A lot of times I'll read my kids stories and I'll do so with a British accent just to, you know, kind of spice things up a little bit. And so I asked for it. And so in that moment, as the words came out of my mouth, I had a decision to make, all right? I could either, A... Just be like, all right, time out, my bad. I don't know what happened there. Can I have a London fog, right? Or I could pray to God that this is the most brief interaction I have, like the history of my life, and just let it ride for a while, okay? Well, I let it ride for a few minutes, all right? <laughs> Back and forth, and I just kind of kept going with the British accent. You can kind of get out of here as quickly as possible. Um, Luckily, she, I, I don't think the, the barista caught on, you know, maybe she did, I don't know, but anyways, either way, that interaction, you know, I was misleading that individual into thinking I was somebody that I actually am not, all right? Now, there is no missing Christmas in our world today, right? It seems each year, sooner and sooner, you start to hear the songs smell the smells, see the sights, right? There's no mistaking the Christmas moment. But you can certainly, certainly mistake the Christmas meaning. You certainly can. If you simply pay attention to what's going on around you this time of year, the sights, the sounds, the smells, right? You can easily be misled into thinking Christmas is something that it's not. If you simply pay attention to the trappings of Christmas, the hustle and the bustle of the season, there's a good chance you will be greatly misled. Focus on the events and the characters surrounding Jesus' birth, the nativity scene, um, as we've kind of used this series to... The, the hope is that as we pick up each character, we can simply ask that character, shepherds, what do you have to say about this child? Right now, if you're familiar with the nativity scene, many of them include the wise men. And what you'll see in our text is that's, I don't want to, you know, kill any of your wonderful traditions, but the, the wise men should not be included in the nativity scene. Now, I can see why we would put them there, because they're a part of the story. They have a great deal to say about this child. But simply what we're doing with our text this morning is, is looking at the wise men, looking at the magi, and simply asking them, what do you have to tell us about this 
child. What do you have to say about this child? Really, the big idea that we see in this text this morning is that Christmas is a call to worship. Christmas is a call to worship. And my prayer for you, for us as a church, as a people, is that as we consider the Christmas season, that that it would remind us of the necessity and the importance to worship Jesus as God and King. Perhaps even this morning by examining these words, we would be able to reevaluate, to examine our worship lives and ask ourselves Are we worshiping Jesus? Are we worshiping Jesus? Throughout the gospel, Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah King in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The royal nature of Jesus and his ministry is on full display all the way throughout the gospel of Matthew. It runs, it's a theme that runs throughout the entire book. In chapter 1, as, as Matthew gives us the genealogy of Jesus, we see really that it's a genealogy of a king. Jesus was born into a royal line, the line of David. Later in chapter 1, we see the birth of the king, the divine nature of Christ's birth in accordance with the Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. In the first three chapters, four times you come across a saying, this happened to fulfill what was spoken. Four times in the first three chapters, you see Matthew showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The Messiah that they were waiting for is Jesus. The one that was spoken about is Jesus. All of the Old Testament finds its yes in Jesus. Chapter 2 concerns itself specifically with the circumstances surrounding the childhood of this king. A king who has captured the attention of the world. Stars and strangers gather around his home here in chapter 2. And today, like 2,000 years ago, the exact same thing has happened. It's like the entire world stops for a moment to consider the significance of this individual. This king demands a response today from you. The only proper response we'll see from these kings is to worship Jesus as king. In verses 1 through 2, we see simply the journey. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. As we consider these first two verses, two things I want to point out first are the men. These wise men. Now there's a lot of legend that surrounds these men. Because on one hand they play a very prominent role in the story of Jesus. They teach us a great deal about who this child is. But also because we simply don't know much about them. For example, what we do not know. We do not know how many wise men there are, right? There could be two. There could be as many as 30. We have no idea how many. Legend says three, um, but we don't know. We don't know their names. Legend is also given, tradition is also given these men names. Balthazar, Malchior, and Gaspar are the names that have been traditionally assigned to these individuals. But again, we don't know that. That's primarily legend. We do not know their names. We don't know how they're dressed. We don't know how old they are. We don't know how far they have traveled. There is plenty that we do not know about these men. However, there are a handful, there are several things here that we do know for sure. 
These men, they're, they're called magi, right? The word translated here as wise men. These magi were typically looked down on by Jews in society at that time due to their association with magic, okay? Depending on the context, the magi could represent wise men. They could represent priests, astrologers, sorcerers, interpreters of dreams. Either way, Jews did not look favorably on these individuals. We also know that they came from the east. They came from the east. We don't know exactly where they came from, but we can speculate they came from Babylon, Persia, or Arabia. Babylon, to me, makes the most sense, given the interest in astrology that Babylonians had at the time, and also the large Jewish population that remained there since the days of the exile. There's a good chance that these men were even familiar with Old Testament prophecy. Specifically, Numbers 27, 14, that says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. They could even be familiar with the scriptures, with the Old Testament prophecy that a star would arise in the heaven, and that they knew the significance and the value of it. There's a good chance they came from Babylon. We also know that they came with a mission. As the wise men follow the star, they make their way to Jerusalem. And they come asking a question which reveals the reason for their traveling. Why they left home, traveled a great distance to follow a star. Verse 2 is the question. As they arrive there, they're asking in Jerusalem, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw the star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. These wise men are on a mission to find someone, a king, who is deserving of their worship. This whole story is about these wise men worshiping. The story begins in their pursuit, their search for someone, someone that's worthy to be worshipped, and the story ends with the act of them worshiping the individual himself. Worship is at the very heart of this story. Those who have come to worship Jesus are not from this land. It's important to remember. They are not Jews. These are foreign individuals who have come to Jerusalem, come from a distant land to worship. In a very real way, God moved heaven and earth to bring these men to worship him. It's, it's a reminder for us this morning that every single one of us is actually in pursuit of the exact same thing that these wise men sought out that day to find. Every single one of us is searching for something that is worthy to worship. Something or someone. And honestly, the Christmas season is a great time to kind of shed some light on what it is that lies at the very center of our hearts. The things that we treasure above all else, be it somebody or something, right? Be it money or success or material possessions, be it relationships or pleasure. The Christmas time provides a great opportunity for us to examine what is it that lies at the very heart of our affections? What is it that we ascribe the greatest worth, the greatest value, that we treasure and prize above all else? The question these wise men are asking should prompt us to ask ourselves this morning. It's not if you will worship. The question is, what will you worship? They set out on a journey. They're searching for something, someone who's worthy of their worship. Verses 3 through 8 show us that in their search, they encounter a bit of trouble. A bit of trouble. Not everyone, upon discovering Jesus the King, responds by worshiping him, we see. Some respond by rejecting him. 
In verses 3 to 8, we are shown two ways which Jesus ultimately is rejected. First, there's direct opposition to Jesus. Matthew tells us that the arrival of the wise men in Jerusalem created a buzz around town. Not just because of who they were, but also who they were looking for. Word eventually would make it back to Herod, the self-appointed king of the Jews. And we're told in verse 3 that he was troubled. That Herod, the king of the Jews, upon encountering the wise men, hearing the questions that they were asking, he was troubled. Why was he troubled? Well, he was troubled because the individual that they were looking for was the king of the Jews. But Herod had given himself that title. He was the king of the Jews. Herod reigned from 37 BC to 4 BC as the client king of Judea under Roman authority. Herod was remembered as a shrewd for his shrewd diplomacy and his public works program. Herod was known for many of the structures in that day, bringing life back into the city, building elaborate structures. Probably the most significant one is the Temple Mount, which you can see parts of even today that remain there. However, Herod's, as great as he was potentially as a leader, as many accomplishments as he had in the area, his life was a hot mess. He lived in constant fear and paranoia that somebody else would take his throne. Herod is known to have had ten wives, one of which he murdered because he saw her as a direct threat to his power, his throne. Herod killed not just one of his wives, he also killed three of his sons. It is commonly known that one of the things that was said back in the day, and it's a little play in the Greek language, is that it's better if you were a sow of Herod's than if you were a son of Herod's. Right? A sow didn't run the risk of taking over your power. Herod was a crazy, crazy man. He was terrified that other people would take his throne. There's a story told that as he approached his death, that Herod wanted to ensure that there would be weeping in Jerusalem. So one of the requests he made to his sisters was that upon his death, that they would take the local stadium there and fill it with notable Jews, religious leaders of the area, fill the stadium with Jewish people. And then when he died, when he took his last breath, unleashed Roman soldiers into the stadium and slaughter everybody in there because he wanted to ensure that the city would cry when he died. That's how sick of an individual he was. And so this is the man. This is the man that Matthew tells us when he heard upon the, about the birth of Jesus, this man was troubled at the news that the, a king had been born. Herod was troubled. He, this king saw Jesus as a rival to his throne. Troubled at the thought of losing power, of losing control, this causes Herod to not just reject him, but to actively oppose him. Now, none of us here today, I would guess, I would hope, can, can relate to having the title of King of the Jews and, and wanting that title as our own. None of us here today necessarily could understand what it means to sit on a throne over a kingdom. But actually, we can Right? And to some degree, we can relate to what Herod is fearing. Right? That somebody will come and take the keys to the kingdom of our life out of our hands. And as a result, we reject, we oppose this king. The, the, uh, somebody else sitting on the throne of our heart, of our life, unwelcome. No thanks. To some degree... Many of us can probably relate to what Herod felt, 
rejecting Jesus. Somebody else who wanted control and power. No thanks. That's me. This is my life. I run this is our response. To some degree, we can relate. But there's another response that we see in the text. Another response to this announcement that a king has been born. There's the response of active rejection and opposition from Herod. But we also see the religious leaders and authorities of the day. They don't actively reject him, but they are apathetic to him. We see this in verse 4 if you look at the text. When Herod the king heard this, he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people... And he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him exactly where Jesus was. See in verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, they say. How do they know this? Well, because they know their Bible. They know the Old Testament. They quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. For it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The chief priests, the scribes, the religious authorities of the day knew exactly where the Messiah King was to be born. They knew exactly where he was, the town that Jesus was in, they knew it. They could point to Old Testament that they... They had memorized, I guarantee, and they could say, this is where Jesus is born. They could point exactly to where he was. But when the foreigners from a distant land set out to, to receive this Jesus, to worship this king, the religious establishment didn't go with them. They, they did not. Can you imagine that? Individuals who were allegedly waiting for a Messiah King to come, for a deliverer, hearing that he's in the midst, that a child has been born, and yet they have no intent of going to worship Jesus. They knew the truth, but they were not moved by the truth. They knew where to look in the Bible, they were familiar with the promises, yet they don't get it. They still miss out on it. They're not ready to receive the king. They're not interested in seeking him out. Folks, this is a terrifying reality. These are individuals who could quote extended the entire Old Testament. They knew it inside and out. But they made no, no action. Their feet didn't move. They were completely apathetic to the news that the king was in their midst. They knew all about the king. This summer, my family and I, we were flying out of some airport, headed to Belize for a couple weeks, see my wife's family, and the gate directly next to us, we were there waiting to catch a, a flight. I don't remember exactly which airport we were in at the time, but uh, I saw an individual walking kind of ahead of me, and I saw that there was a little bit of hubbub. People were kind of connecting, like walking past this individual. I could tell that he was important, but I couldn't quite make out who it was, right? And so um, as I got a little closer, as the individual got a little closer, I began to see that it was Usain Bolt. Perhaps you're familiar with the Olympic gold star record setting sprinter, right? Okay. So I'm in the flesh. I was just walking, right? I kind of ran past him a little bit <laughs> just, to, just to say I, I beat him in a race. He, he, didn't know, he didn't know we were racing, but, you know, I took him down. It was all right. Anyways, I saw him and instantly recognized who he was, right? Because I... Because I knew a lot, I know a lot about him, right? I've seen him run, I, I know a bit about him, okay? But I do not know him. 
right? I, I couldn't go up to him. I could look at him and say, hey, there goes Usain Bolt. Look at me, you know. But if I would have gone up to him, hey, what's up? Yeah, nothing. There's no way. Hey, remember when? No, not a chance, right? Because I don't know him. And folks, there's a big difference. There's a big difference. You can know a tremendous amount about Jesus. You can have verses committed to memory. You can tell the Christmas story. You can tell about miracles and, and healings and teachings of Jesus. You, can, you may be able to even quote the Great Commission, for example. You, you could grow up in Sunday school. You go to a Christian college. Go to seminary. You could work on staff at a church or a Christian school. You could know a lot about Jesus. You could teach other people about Jesus. These people were. They were. They were teaching others about the Messiah King who was going to come. But the text shows us they knew a bit about Jesus, but they did not know Jesus. No change in direction. They did not stop. I mean, you would think of all the people in this story. Herod, the wise men, the scribes and the Pharisees, of all the people in this story who would have dropped everything and did whatever it took to get to King Jesus, it would have been these individuals. But that's not what the Bible says. As the wise men head to Bethlehem, they go there alone. The Jews do not come with them. That should, be, that should terrify us this morning, right? That should terrify us. Same thing happens today. Same thing can happen in our churches. People who know a tremendous amount about Jesus, but do not know him. That should scare you. It should scare you. Opposition to Jesus and indifference to Jesus are both a rejection of Jesus. There's really only two ways to respond to the Christmas story. You can reject Jesus as the Messiah King, the King of your life, the King of this world, or you can embrace him and you can worship him. And that's what the wise men do. We see it in their response, verses 10 through 12. Upon discovering the Messiah King, these wise men responded, the only proper way we can respond to deity. They worshipped him. Now, the text does not say, we, we cannot assume that they believed him to be deity. However, we can learn a tremendous amount from their response about worship in general. So just a few things about worship we can learn. First of all, worship, their worship was joyful. We see it in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There is no mention of how the wise men respond upon finding King Herod. Right? You, you notice there's a conflict of kings here. You notice how the, the wise men respond. They go into Jerusalem and they don't even necessarily seek out King Herod. He hears that they're there and he hears what they're asking and he comes and finds them. Right? There's no comparing King Herod to King Jesus. The wise men are there. They have gifts, but they're not for King Herod. Okay? No shouts of joy, no gifts for that king, nothing. But when these men find Jesus, remember a child, most likely one to two years old. This is probably around six to, well, 
Herod died in 4 BC and they think Jesus was born somewhere between 4 and 6 BC. And unlike many of us think, there's, there's no zero, year zero. So it goes from 1 BC to 1 AD and Jesus was born somewhere over here. Okay, so a little just history lesson for you. Um, they find King Jesus and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, joy is not usually an emotion that needs a qualifier, but this one has three of them. They rejoiced exceedingly with joy, but it wasn't just joy, it was great joy. This is a tremendous, as they find Jesus, they are overflowing with joy. It's a wonderful reminder that worshiping Jesus is not just acknowledging him as king, giving him honor and, and it's, it's recognizing his dignity as king. But worshiping Jesus is also about enjoying him as king. Okay? Not just acknowledging him as king, but enjoying him. So as you even just think about your worship life, a question I would ask you this morning is, do you enjoy King Jesus? Do you know what it means to enjoy him as your king? Psalms tells us that we are to delight ourselves in the Lord, to make a joyful noise of the Lord. Why? Because in his presence there is fullness of joy. The Bible commands us to have joy, right? It commands us to. But for many of us, when we think of worship, we think of it in this dutiful way. Like, it's a duty for me to worship God. And yeah, he does command us to. But folks, worshiping Jesus, this should bring us tremendous joy. Our worship should be marked with joy, much like these wise men. Their worship was joyful. Their worship was also reverent. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. The text doesn't say that they stood. They didn't clap. They didn't raise their hands, all of which are appropriate responses as we cry out to Jesus, as we worship him. But that's not what they did. The text tells us they fell down. They went to their hands and their knees, their faces on the floor, and they worshipped him. Right? When you come into the presence of God, it, it, it rightly helps you understand where you fit. Right? This is a humbling experience to come into his presence. And the wise men fall down on the ground because they understand how glorious and how awesome he is and how able and fragile we are. Their worship was joyful, it was reverent, but it was also sacrificial. Then we're told they opened their treasures. They offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. For the Magi, worship meant giving of their very best gifts. That which they protected and they prized before all else. They laid at the feet of this child. Tradition tells us that there was three wise men and that tradition comes from the fact that they gave three gifts. But again, we don't know how many there were. So laying these gifts at Jesus' feet, the Magi are declaring, you, Jesus, are my real treasure. You are what matters most to me. These gifts could have proven very practical, right? As you consider the family was about to take a flight to Egypt as they tried to protect the life of Jesus. Family was about to spend a number of years in Egypt and it's very possible that these gifts had a practical purpose. They could have provided a monetary, monetary assistance as they traveled and provided for the family. But these gifts also said something prophetic. The gold was typically a gift that was given to kings. Frankincense was something that was used by priests as they worshipped in the temple. And myrrh essentially was an agent that was used in embalming individuals upon their death. 
So even the gifts given to Jesus as a child are pointing to the fact that Jesus would be our king, our God, and our savior. They worship him by sacrificially giving to him. And finally, we see that their worship was obedient. There's actually a fourth gift that they gave Jesus. And that gift was uh, they protected his life, right? Look in verse 12, it says, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Earlier in chapter 1, Joseph was warned in a dream not to divorce Mary. And here again, God speaks to the wise men in a dream, and they obeyed his word. This obedience marked the wise men, at least what we know about the wise men in their lives, right? They saw the star in the sky, they knew God's word, and they followed in obedience. Here God appears to them in a dream and tells them, don't go that way, go this way. And the wise men respond to God's word with obedience. True worship always results in radical obedience, always results in radical obedience. It's not okay to come in here to raise your hands when we proclaim Jesus, right, and to check him at the door. Jesus wants to be with you throughout your every day, every minute, every moment that you're alive is an opportunity for you to worship him by obeying him. Right? It is the love language of God. He knows that you love him. Yes, when you raise your hands, when you fall on your face, that shows, us that, he, that shows God that you love him. But it also shows God that you love him when you take his word and you do what it says. Right? These wise men obeyed him. Show us, they show us how to worship. We worship joyfully, worship reverently. Worship sacrificially, and we worship obediently. Now, in closing, just some practical ways that we can apply this. First of all, for those of us among those of you among us this morning who may not be a follower of Jesus, first of all, we are so glad that you are here. If if Jesus is not your King, we are so glad that you are here. Um, this, this passage, hopefully you see that there's clearly two ways to respond to Jesus. You can go the way of Herod, the way of the religious leaders and reject Jesus. Or you can listen to the wise men and you can learn what wise worship looks like. They heard the news of Jesus and for them there was no distance that was too far. There was no gift that was too prized to give. These men expressed their love and their adoration towards him by receiving them as a king and by worshiping him as such. Now, for the believer, for, for those of you among us who, who, who call Jesus your Lord and Savior, who've given your life to him, who've received the gift of salvation, I mean, really, this, the calendar year provides us a wonderful opportunity as we bring 2018 to a close to look back and to think about your life as worship and to ask the question, what kind of worshiper are you? What kind of worship did you participate in in 2018? Was your worship joyful? Did you enjoy Jesus as your king? Was your worship reverent? Was your worship sacrificial? As you look at giving and even what it looked like to give to him, not just money, but also parts of you, things that God has blessed you with, holding on to those things loosely, are you ready to give those things back? What, what did that look like in 2018 for you? What does obedience look like 
What did it look like in, your, in this past year for you? As you sat in community group and, and took God's word and opened it up and read and, and saw challenge after challenge, encouragement after encouragement, did you, did you leave with God's word saying, how do I now do this? I mean, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to examine our lives as lives of worship and, and to maybe think ahead, right? Look back and, and what did worship look like for you? How could you grow as a worshiper? as somebody who holds your life loosely and gives it to God? And what could 2019 look like? What what does giving look like in 2019? What does your time look like in 2019? What does obedience to God and his word look like in 2019? It's a wonderful opportunity for us to examine our lives, to examine our worship. The Christmas story, folks, it's a call to worship. And the simple question we asked this morning is, that I think the wise men are, are begging us to ask, is how are you going to answer that call? How are you going to answer that call? Let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, we come before you and um, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we, thank you for, we are thankful that, that you show us in your word that you are true to your word, Father. Lord, you make it very clear to to us what you expect from us, Lord. But you also make it very, very clear what you have done for us. And Lord, for that, we thank you. Lord, you, you have done what none of us could do. You paid the death that, that all of us deserve to have paid, Father. Lord, as we consider Christmas and, and the story, the birth of, of the true Messiah King, Father, I pray that you would help us to have the strength to respond in the only way that is appropriate to a true king, Father, that we would give our lives in worship. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.